0: welcome to preaching in season a series designed to help ministers in their work of reading and preaching the word in this episode bible professor mark hamilton delves into the biblical text that many christians will be reading for the third sunday in lent 2022 thank you for listening Welcome to this fourth in a series of podcasts on preaching in season. These podcasts are exploring the text that the Common Lectionary gives the church uh, for the season of Lent. As we've talked about in the previous sessions, Lent is not just a time of giving up something that we happen to like, nor is it a time merely for remorse uh, and repentance narrowly defined. Lent is a time of clearing away the rubbish in our lives so that we can be prepared to hear the gospel news uh, that Christ is risen at Easter, the news that God has overcome the world and has overcome evil and even death itself. Death is not the end, and our lives have meaning and purpose and grandeur because of that fact. So today we're going to explore a number of texts, Isaiah 55, 1-9, Psalm 63, 1 through 8, 1 Corinthians 10, 1 to 13, and Luke 13, 1 through 9. And as we do, we'll see examples of how the expansive view of faith can inform our lives. I'll begin with this text in 1 Corinthians 10. Paul, Paul writes to this church at Corinth and, and helps them try to rethink some of their behaviors and and some of their views of the world in light of the story of the cross. And in chapter 10, he's beginning to leave his list of problems and move into the deepest of all. They're thinking about their relationship with God itself, worship itself. And he refers to the old story of the exodus and the wilderness wanderings. I do not, he says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with some of them god was not well pleased and then he goes on to tell them the story of the wilderness wanderings as israel was disciplined for its well cantankerousness and its uh, its unwillingness to believe there are a lot of layers to this text Uh, it's striking that he says in verse 11 that these are models they're tupicos they're written for our discernment, new They're written so that we will understand the world better. It's interesting how we look at the past. We can use the past in all sorts of ways, and some people want us to glorify the past, or at least certain parts of the past, so that we'll feel terribly terribly good about ourselves and our ancestors. That doesn't seem to be the way of the Bible, however. In the Bible, there's a kind of rigorous honesty about the fact that our ancestors were a mixed bag, just as we are. That they were rebellious at times, they were uh, stubborn at times, they were uncomprehending, sometimes deliberately uncomprehending. And in short, they were very much like the rest of us. And so glorifying them is misguided. It's not erasing the past to tell the truth about it. It's actually the most honoring thing we can do. And Paul says, look, these folks experienced the grandeur of the salvation of God. They lived in a world of miracle, of astonishing things. They had seen the end of their slavery. They had been freed, not in a quiet quiet political sort of way but in through miracle through the radical subjugation of nature itself for the purposes of their liberation and so he says you too have experienced that he uses the language of uh, the Christian language he describes the children of Israel as having been baptized and having eaten the same spiritual food Uh, and he uses he uses very explicitly Christian language in what must have been originally the, the material from the synagogue sermon. I say that because we know that at least one of Paul's contemporaries of a, a document called Pseudophilo, we don't know the name of the author, cites the same idea that the rock moved in the wilderness. Uh, and th- so that does seem to be part of preaching in the synagogue as they tried to make sense of the fact that you had um, uh, Moses extracting water from the rock at two different places, uh, even though the stories otherwise are extremely similar. So the idea was the rock moved. Paul adds an explicitly Christian dimension to that when he says the rock that followed them was Christ. He calls on the Corinthians to imagine themselves as part of this gigantic story spanning time and space a story into which they've been grafted as gentiles uh, he says remember our ancestors even though technically speaking these people in the wilderness in the book of exodus through numbers were not their ancestors they were israelites and his readers were mostly gentiles but there are honorary ancestors there are ancestors in faith and they may also be our ancestors in doubt and in confusion. And so he says to them, let us choose how we how we appropriate the past, how we make sense of those who've come before us. That that sense of choosing of trying to make sense of the past also extends into the present in the gospel reading for this week from Luke 13:1 through 9. This is, a, this is one of Luke's reflections on the nature of repentance itself, but he wants to be very careful in how he talks about that. If you remember in the, in the book of the Acts of the Apostles at Pentecost, Peter calls upon the people who have slain the Messiah by cruel and wicked hands, he says, to repent because this promise is to you and your children and all who are as far off as many as the Lord our God shall call." There is that sense that, that even in the face of the most terrible action, the murder of the Messiah himself, there's still a road back to God for those who will take it and it's a road full of promise and hope. Well, that's Acts chapter 2, and the text for this week is Luke chapter 13, but it's a very similar theme. Luke 13 reads, at that very time, there was some present who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. In other words, Jesus has been watching the evening news, so to speak. Oh, word of mouth, of course, but he, he gets the news that there was some massacre in Jerusalem. And he responds to that. He says, do you you think they were worse than the rest of us? And of course, the answer has to be no. And so he says, I tell you, if you don't repent, you will perish the same way. I don't think he means that Pilate's going to get you if you don't straighten up. He simply means that uh, a life of committed evil leads to destruction. He doesn't comment on whether the Galileans massacred were better or worse. It does seem as though his, his conversation partners must have thought that they were worse. Otherwise, it's hard to explain why he brought it up. He also cites another story in the news about 18 people who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them. Again, we don't know much about these particular stories. But we watch the news ourselves in the evening, and we know similar stories of one of the government, a government acting to oppress people, and another of some construction accident. This could be any news night of our lives. He says to those, he says to them, "Don't, don't conclude from the suffering of people that their lives are worse than others. God doesn't bring tragedy in that way. God is not sort of rigging buildings to fall on wicked people or inspiring Pontius Pilate to murder guilty people. He's simply saying that the world is messy and, and therefore we need to try to live as well as we can in this world. And then he does something I, I think is fascinating. He he tells a story This is a story that actually has a prehistory going all the way back to the book of Isaiah. You remember in the book of Isaiah in chapter five, there is a a sort of mock song that the prophet sings. He says, I'm going to sing a song of a vineyard uh, about my friend who planted this beautiful vineyard. And you think, ah, we're about to hear a bit of the song of Solomon or something like that, a love song perhaps. But then it turns, Well, it turns very negative. He says, my friend planted this vineyard, but the vineyard, uh, despite all of my friend's best efforts, produced the most wretched wine you could ever drink. He, He had done everything right, planted the right plants, tilled the soil correctly, built the wall around it, trimmed and pruned at the right times. He'd done everything right, but the wine was terrible. You know, it's just good for fingernail polish removal or some, some equivalent of that. And therefore, he's going to tear it all up and start over. And Isaiah makes, makes sure that we know that this is not really a love song and it's not really a song about a vineyard. It's a song about Jerusalem and Judah. It's a story about the people of God and God's frustration with them. Well, Jesus, of course, knows that story, and he knows some of the other things the Book of Isaiah does with that, as it turns it, it turns the story in different directions, and he turns it in yet another direction here. He says this: a man planted a, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. So it's fig trees instead of, instead of grapes, but it's a very similar story. The fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he looked for fruit, and there wasn't any. The tree seemed to be sterile. So he said to the, the manager of the field, the gardener, the, his, his, his staff person, he says, okay, I've, I've been working on this for three years. The tree is apparently defective, or it's apparently sterile. There's no point in continuing to try to grow it. Why don't you dig it up and get rid of it? And the manager of the farm says, sir, if you don't mind, why don't you give me one more year? Let's try another time. You ask yourself, why does Jesus tell this story? Why does he tell this story? Because what's this got to do with the conversation about repentance? I think the answer is, is probably fairly straightforward. It's easy to read the first bit of Luke 13 and think that Jesus is simply calling everybody to straighten up immediately or else to read it in a rather threatening way. And there is some truth to that. But, But he's also wanting to say that the God who calls us to change is not a God eager to punish, not eager to uproot the tree, rather wants to let it grow and flourish and bear fruit, and so gives us time. Uh, this is a theme in the New Testament and the Old Testament too. Uh, the theme that the reason evil doesn't befall the wicked immediately is because God gives people time to change. that there is a, there is room for maneuver and there is and, and there, and we, this is because God seeks seeks reform and change and, and growth. The other two texts that we read this week are from the Old Testament. The first one is Psalm 63, which is a text about longing for the presence of God. O God, you are my God, I seek you, my soul thirsts for you, Uh, language we also see in the 42nd Psalm. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. It's quite, a, quite an extraordinary image that the person's longing for God is, is comparable to the longing that a person staggering through the desert, desperate for a drink, has for water. I know that if I don't get this, I'm going to die. And if I do get this, not only will I live, but I will be refreshed and invigorated and then I can keep going. So, the psalmist goes on, I have looked for you, upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. In other words, he'd gone to the temple. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands and call on your name. My soul is satisfied as with a rich feast, and my mouth praises you with joyful lips. It's rather an interesting image there. The mouth that can both eat and enjoy eating, and the mouth that can sing praises of the one who has provided the banquet. When I think of you on my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. We have here the voice of the pious person who does not serve God out of fear or out of a sense of obligation, much less a sense to impress other people or somehow impress God, but as as an expression of the longing for God. That's a theme I think we could recapture during this Lent. We tend, and I tend too, to, to be very impatient with the people around us and to assume sometimes the worst, especially the worst of those whose lives don't seem to fit the description I think they ought to. But can I start to look, in, instead of for the faults, instead of for the problems, Can I start to look for the hunger for God? Where is that hunger in myself? Where is that hunger in those around me? If I spot it, can I celebrate it? Even if it's it's surrounded by all sorts of other things that are problematic, as it is in my life and probably yours, can I still celebrate it? That's what this text does. It, It talks about singing. It talks about joyful word. When somebody's blessed your life, the natural thing to do is to tell others about that, to sing praises of that person, to tell others how wonderful that person is, how much more so in the life of faith when that other person is the creator. And our last text for this week, uh, speaking of praising the creator and the creator's generosity, is the end of... A big section in the book of Isaiah. This is Isaiah 55. This, this whole section, beginning back in chapter 40, has been inviting the exiles of Israel to recall the God they say they worship, they think has abandoned them, and to recognize that this God has not abandoned them. No, no, this God has called them into new relationship this God is seeking their renewal and chapter 55 brings it all home in this glorious triumphant invitation as the 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 speaker says hey everybody who is thirsty come to the waters again the imagery is very close to Psalm 63 which is probably why our lectionary creators chose both this week Come to the waters. Even if you don't have any money, don't worry about it. Uh, We're not not taking your money here. We want you to come and, and, and enjoy what's available. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? Language that probably means something to exiled people for whom even finding bread is sometimes a challenge. Why do you waste your time on things that don't satisfy? I think it's uh, somebody once defined happiness as that moment just before you start looking for happiness again. And there's very much something to that. The the sort of relentless pursuit that we're enculturated in, in American culture, to constantly look for something else that will fill the hole in our lives, something new, and it's never never enough, is... um, is a reality that even ancient people are familiar with at some level, even though they didn't have the power of marketing to to feed the hunger in our souls as we do. But they knew what it was like to waste your time on things that don't matter. And so the prophet says, why are you doing that? And then it, it reorients these people. Verse, five, verse 6, seek the Lord while he may be found. The text does not mean that God's in a hurry to get out of here, so you better catch him while you have the chance. It simply means that you folks have thought God was gone. You thought your history was over. You thought your culture was erased. You thought the end had arrived, but it has not arrived. Your culture is not erased. God is not gone. God is near. Reach out. Call on God. You can do it let the wicked forsake their ways. The prophet addresses all sorts of people. Those who are brokenhearted, hungry for God, but think God is, is evading them or dodging them, avoiding them. Those who are, who have embraced evil, uh, those who are just not sure where they are. Uh, humans come in all sorts of packages, but all of them are being invited to come and drink of the waters and to enjoy what truly satisfies and then the last bit and a place to end as god says my thoughts are not your thoughts my ways are not your ways they're higher as the heavens are higher than the earth so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts Now that that verse works pretty well as a soundbite, and sometimes it does get extracted and taken out of any sort of context, but it has a very specific context in Isaiah 55, and that context is, again, the story of those who have lost everything, and they have been exiled. And, they, and the prophet has come to them and says, it's not the end, there's a way forward. And they say, well, how, how's that possible? There's no way, we're too discouraged. We're too brokenhearted. We can't, we can't believe it. We don't dare trust it, it's, it's too painful. And the prophet says, God's plan is bigger than your plan. Don't be, don't think small. I suppose a last thought, That's very relevant during the season we've been through the last two years, a kind of exile that many of us have been in. And it's very easy to despair and to think that there is no future. But this text wants to affirm that the God who gave a future before gives one again. All is not lost, all is not forgotten. There is a future and let us embrace it with joy. Thank you for listening. I look forward to conversation with you in just a few days. Preaching in Season is a production of the Graduate School of Theology at Abilene Christian University in partnership with the Center for the Study of Ancient Religious Texts. If you're interested in learning more about us and what we do, visit us at acu.edu GST or email us at gst at acu.edu. Until next time.